Welcome to a very special New Year's Day edition of True North Nerds. It's Brent. I'm by myself. Sort of. Uh, Jenna's here. She's in her office. Uh, Ryan is on his way. Uh, Kevin is visiting a friend who had major surgery uh, down in the city. So um, this is a little bit of a fill-in episode. Um, this is from our archives. This is uh, comic book writer Jim Zub's panel from uh, Fan Expo. Um, I, uh, air quotes, co-hosted this panel <laughs> and, uh, Jim's, uh, been around the block, uh, several times in the comic industry. He's done creator owned. He's done self-published. He has worked for Marvel. Uh, he just wrapped up a run on, um, Uncanny Avengers, uh, that just finished. Um, pretty good run from uh, the bits and pieces of it I've read. So, uh, we thought we'd share that with you. You won't hear much of me on it because, uh, Jim got a good head of steam going, and I didn't really want to interrupt. He had a lot of cool things to say. So if you've ever been interested in how a comic book is created or um, writing for comics or anything of that sort, uh, give the rest of this episode a listen. It's a really neat insight. And not only that, Jim's uh, got a few stories to share that are rather funny. So our next regular episode will be in two weeks from now. It will be our favorites of the year. So we are going to go through our favorite films of the year, TV shows, uh, video games, toys, all sorts of stuff. Uh, notice I say favorites, not best. We are of the opinion that uh, opinions are different. Uh, the movies you like might not be the movies that I like. Doesn't mean you're wrong. Um, doesn't mean I'm right. But it, it's the stuff that we really enjoyed this year. So... Uh, you'll notice some movies will be absent it's because we haven't seen them. Um, quite frankly, we have day jobs. We only have a certain amount of resources, and I don't qualify for the Academy, so uh, the, I don't get sent screeners or anything. Uh, not yet. Maybe in the future. Who knows? Uh, so uh, we will that that episode. I'm betting's going to be a long one, but. Um, yeah, that's what we're coming back with in the new year, and just wanted to do. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Uh, this is the first episode of the new year. Hopefully you guys stick with us until uh, next year because we plan on keeping out this going. Uh, I also wanted to just give a quick shout out to Kevin Boyd and the the crew at Fan Expo who uh, set me up with hosting this panel and were very gracious and very nice to me. They don't have to be, but they're very nice to me and give me some really cool stuff to do. So uh, hopefully that relationship continues this year with the Fan Expo 2018. Anyways, here is the start of the show and Jim Zub talking about comics. Set your phasers to sexy. Uh, if you've never met me before, I'm Jim Zub. Uh, I'm a professional comic book writer. I love saying that out loud. 
And a good one, too. Uh, are we, you sure? We, yes. Okay. I, in my opinion. Wow. Well, that's good to know. Uh, I've <laughs> done work for probably every major comic book publisher in North America. A couple you've heard of. Marvel, DC, Image, IDW, Dark Horse, Udon, Chapter House, uh, others. They're all very nice. Have you self-published anything? I have. I self-published. My first first comic was a self-published comic. So, um, and uh, Jeff Lemire, who will hopefully be here uh, later on, uh, he's a phenomenal writer, and I'm sure all the advice I give you uh, will be the exact same. I don't know what, but we will uh, make this as entertaining as possible. And for the other people who aren't here, they will be regretting that they missed it because they don't get free comic books. There you go. It's the I'm not taking it home with me pile. No, no, it's all good. I brought these just for you guys, I promise. Um, Anyways, so we're going to talk about the comic writing process, uh, breaking in, pitching. Um, If we got time, we'll answer some questions. Hopefully my energy will not flag too much and my brain will stay somewhat focused on the task at hand. Uh, and it'll be fun and good times. Tell us. I don't know why I'm here. You don't know why you're here? What's your background on all this stuff? Oh, no, I'm a, I'm a I don't, professional comic book moderator, isn't You're a professional comic book no, moderator? No, not quite professional, but... So hold on, you've yeah. moderated for uh, conventions including... No, I'm just going to go yeah. down the list. Well, yeah, this one, the, the other ones. The other one, one this one, the I, other I one. I did one on a cruise ship. Oh, that, see? That they flew me out. So. I haven't done a cruise ship. That it, makes it me It was sad. so awesome. Was but, it? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it later. That would be so later, weird. Though. Anyways, um, what are we going to do... I know it sounds weird to do that little overview. Um, have any of you, I know it sounds a little awkward, how many of you have, have read some of my work? Like, is it helpful for me to, okay, you about like less than just under half. So maybe I'll give you a quick overview of some of the stuff I've done. Um, I'm probably best known for, you know, the commercial stuff that I've done. I'm currently writing the official Dungeons and Dragons comic. Yay. Love T&D so much. Love Sword and Sorcery. Uh, I did the Samurai Jack comic series for IDW. I wrote a two-part Batman story for Legends of the Dark Knight. Uh, I did a run on Thunderbolts, led by the Winter Soldier last year for Marvel, and I'm currently writing the Uncanny Avengers. Um, those are some of the bigger titles. I did a Suicide Squad special. Yep. I've done uh, the Pathfinder series. Uh, my creator-owned comics are at Image. Uh, one of them, my breakout book was uh, called Skull Kickers. And that rant, thank you. That one guy's like, yeah. Uh, My second uh, book, and probably the one I'm best known for, is called Wayward, and that's published by Image Comics as well. Uh, And we'll talk about that uh, as part of the whole pitching kind of overview thing. And my latest one is called Glitter Bomb, uh, which you can also get here at the show. And my co creator, Jabril, is sitting there beside me at our table over at P8. Anyways, um, I'll just do a quick sort of rundown. The most common question anyone gets asked is, like, how did you break in? Yes. So I'll assume that everyone else at the table had wonderful and engaging answers that were very varied in there. There was one old timer who was able to walk up to the office yeah. and get a job. Yeah, he just showed up with a coffee-stained portfolio and just said, hey, look, uh, I drew uh, uh, the toad. And they were like, great, you got a job. Um, nowadays, it's a, it's a much different kind of experience. If you're looking to break into the industry, you, the good news is, is you no longer have to be centered where publishers are based. So when I was growing up, um, 
New York was the hub for all the superhero comic stuff. And so you either had to kind of be in New York City or know those people or be brilliant and British in order to work in comics, as far as I could tell. And so I didn't think that that was a way, to, I didn't think there was any way to, to do comics. My background is in animation. And the reason why I got into animation is because I also love that. Um, but I looked at the scrolling credit list of a TV show and I thought I could be one of, one of those flying by rapidly that no one cares about. Um, I would never have my name on the cover of a book. That just seemed impossibly too small, too, too um, focused. Uh, so I focused on my animation uh, sort of career and worked in animation for several years, worked as a background artist, worked as a storyboard artist. And the nice thing about animation as a career is it really gives you this broad kind of base of, of storytelling. Yes. Yeah. It's, um, it's a very all-encompassing kind of field. So you learn how to visually tell a story, you learn how to pace things well, you learn how to draw quickly, you learn how to hit deadlines, and you're part of a larger pipeline of people. The animation process has got a lot of people involved in production, approvals, and art, and design, and storytelling, and animation, and color, and final sound mixing, and everything else. So even more so than comics, it, it requires a lot of different hands and a lot of different approvals. And it teaches you how to be both invested in the process in the sense that you want to do the best work you can, but also divested from the process because you can't control everything. You can't be the person. You're not launching thunderbolts from on high and you know Zeus telling everyone this is the way it's going to be. And that collaborative nature, I think, lends itself well to comics. Um, we're in a weird era where a lot of times the writer is seen as this fountainhead kind of genius of ideas. And sure, I could take some credit. I like being called a genius or something. But the reality is comics are like any other creative art form, and it's a collaboration. It's a collaboration with other people. The obvious people, the ones that, whose names are on the cover, the writer, the artist, color artist. I call them color artists. I don't call them colorists anymore. Colorists makes it sound like they take a crayon or they have a bucket fill and they just do the thing. Coloring now in comics is pure art. It's beautiful, moody, an intense part of the final published experience. And uh, I think that I say line artist, color artist, because they're both the art team. Uh, and the letterer as well. And all those people um, are part of that collaborative process. And so being in animation, you sort of like get used to, we're all gonna dig in and do this thing together. Um, and what I learned very early on working in animation was that you, um, how do I put this properly? You have a certain amount of control of the process, but only in your little kind of area. And uh, my first few animation jobs were not on high profile uh, things. And I was sort of feeling a little bit creatively empty. And so I would go home at night and I would brainstorm story stuff. And I knew I couldn't afford to make my own animated thing. And I had been looking at web comics online. Mm -hmm. This is, oh, the halcyon days of 2000. Uh, the internet is still a so court. It's a past dial-up, though. Yeah, we're into we're, the cable yeah, era. A couple people way. have high speed, and you're like, "What is that?" And I see a couple people out there yeah. who are like, "Dial." And there's a couple people who are like, "I wasn't born yet," and I'm like, Ugh. "Anyways." <laughs> um, yeah, I try and explain to, uh, when I'm not making comics, I teach at Seneca College in their animation program. I'm the coordinator of the three-year advanced diploma program. And I explained to them that when I was in school, um, the vast majority of people in my class did not have email addresses, yep. including my teacher. <laughs> so you couldn't, well, literally you go check your email once every three weeks 
and all the emails would be from the same people who had emails, and they were like, I have email now. And you'd be like, cool. <laughs> Send. And then you'd leave, and there was no spam. Right? Anyways, it was a different time. Also, no World Wide Web. I am old. Um, so, <laughs> the, uh, the animation thing, uh, I learned a lot. I started making my own webcomic in the evenings. Mm -hmm. That was kind of my, my start. And one of the first things I tell people, as much as you can read how-tos, as much as you can um, read books on how to write stories, on how to make things or art, training is very, very important. And I say this as a teacher, you will learn so much by doing, by, by failing, by you know, muddying your way through it and figuring out your own process. And so making that webcomic and putting it up three pages a week, I would put up pages on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I learned a ton. I learned a ton about pacing and storytelling and art and lettering and Photoshop at the time because I didn't know it very well because it was sort of new. Um, and uh, just a, just a whole was this during the period where you doing the art digitally or uh, were you doing? Well, it, I was doing it traditionally, scanning, like, scanning it in and, scanning and then adding it. like tones with Photoshop and realizing some of these tools are terrible. Um, yeah, it was a real process for me in a good way yep. to get a feel for that whole pipeline of the process. And so even if you just want to be a writer, I assume you're on this panel, you're probably interested in writing, I think it's valuable to, to try and get your fingers into as many different parts of the process as possible. And that's true of any creative job you want to do. One of the ways that I think I've, and I'm trying not to sound cocky, but proven myself valuable is because I've done so many different, I've worn so many different hats. So I've been uh, a writer, I've been an artist, I've been a letterer, I've been a colorist, I've been an editor and an art director and a teacher. And so when I start working with someone, I kind of know what their job is and I know how to make their life easier, if that sounds, makes sense. When I start working with an editor, when I was an editor, I know what I wanted to see. I know what I needed to do my job. And so I preemptively kind of can give that to someone. And they're like, well, this guy is so easy to work with. Like, I didn't even have to ask for it. You know, something as simple as um, when you make a comic, you have to do what's called solicit advertising copy that goes in the catalog. You're like, oh, that sounds like fun. No. Um, I would, you know, it's a monthly book. So they tell me the deadline for the first solicit. And then in my calendar, I put a thing, uh, an alert a month later that says, write the solicit. And then I wrote the solicit. And then a month later, there's an alert that says, write the solicit. And I sent it in. And the first time I did that, the editor was like, I didn't have to ask you. I'm like, it's a, it's a monthly book. Like, this seems very straightforward. Yeah. And he goes, I have to hound people and chase them down just to get this information. I'm like... Nope. It's kind of the least sexy part of the writing process, yeah, really. That's the, I can do that while I'm still rubbing my eyes, you know, kind of, they kill each other, you know, like whatever. Two paragraphs without yeah. giving away the main plot of the book. September, they all die. You know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, those kinds of little things, just having a knowledge of what other people are doing. So making my webcomic back in the house in the early 2000s uh, taught me a ton about storytelling and also introduced me to a community of creators. Um, good news, you came to a convention, you made a good first step. You can meet all sorts of people here. The people here in this audience are obviously interested in making comics. Great, talk to each other later, not now, later. Um, 
go, uh, you know, go to Artist Alley and you'll see all sorts of artists. Some of them are very well established, but some of them are just students who are graduating from art school. Some of them are my students who graduated from art school, um, showing off their work, trying to get their foot in the door, trying to build uh, their work. Talk to them, engage with them, build up your own kind of community and build up your own sort of support network. When I was going and putting my stuff online in web comics, this thing was just getting started. And now it's weird looking back at it. Guys like, um, I don't know how many of you read web comics, throw up your hand. You read comics on the web, it's kind of a thing. Um, the guys that, were, that are the Penny Arcade guys, they were just getting started. They were just two dorks at a booth. Uh, Scott Kurtz, who does PVP, just, you know, guys making comics. And we'd all kind of hang out, we'd all talk online, and we'd all complain and, and, you know, talk about our fears and desires and, and uh, hopes and dreams over email or on little forums or things like that. And as each of us figured things out, we would give each other advice. We would say, hey, I just face planted on this thing. Don't do what I just did. You know, a lot of it is that really don't do this. <laughs> Look at me. I'm in this burning car wreck at the side of the road. Don't do that. You know what I mean? But um, that's, that's a really important part of the kind of creative process is doing and then also reaching out and meeting other people in the same kind of situation as yourself. Um, I know the natural tendency is that you want to grab hold of someone who is at the level you want to be at. You want to grab, you know, go to the biggest artist and go up to Jim Lee and be like, hey, pal, <laughs> can I take you for coffee? It's, it's like, it's not going to happen. Think of it like if this was boxing, like you're fighting at your own weight class. Yep. Like you're sort of, I'm just getting started. I need to find other people who are getting started. And we're going to go to the gym and we're going to throw shadow punches and embarrass ourselves and figure these things out and advise each other and build up bit by bit by bit. And the same thing kind of happened with me in terms of comics and in terms of creativity in general. Um, building stories, learning from them, learning from each other. And every so often, one person will sort of pop up to the next level of the ladder. They discovered something amazing, or they made a great contact, or they um, you know, got picked up by a publisher or something like that. And then we're all like, ooh, you've leveled up. you know. And then that person sort of says, hey, up here, the air is fine. Let's go. Come on. I broke through the wall. <laughs> I'll pull you through <laughs> before they put the bricks back up. you know. And so a few of you slip through and a couple of you climb over the top and one dude's dead at the bottom and you salute them and then you keep going. you know. Um, and it was like that. It was like that when I started doing, um, I started working for the Udon studio. There was a group of artists that were making their own art and making their own comics and doing all kinds of stuff. A friend of mine that I went to school with named Omar Dogan, he's a phenomenal artist, dear friend. We had worked at an animation studio together. We were living in an apartment at the same time, and we were also driving to work together. So I spent more time with him than probably anyone else in my life, because we would literally be crashed in the apartment, rooms apart, get up, have breakfast, get in the car, drive. Our desks were beside each other at work. It was worse than being married. Like, it was weird. I love being married. But <laughs> my wife is not in the room. No, but I do. But, um, I saw that guy all the time, and we hung out, and we chatted, and we talked about our hopes and dreams and fears and all that sort of stuff. And when we went off to separate jobs, we stayed in touch, and um, he had come back to Toronto and had done work for a studio called Dreamwave, and then had, was working for <laughs> Uda. That's, Sorry. That elicits uh, a chuckle uh, as soon uh, well, as you say it's, it's just one of those things that, like, I remember when Dreamwave was the, the, the biggest. one of the biggest things When Transformers launched, that was selling more than Marvel books. Oh, yeah. 
And, yeah. And then... And then they spent money like people who were making more money than Marvel. And then disappeared. Mm, that's a story. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different kind of panel. Um, the Udon guys were doing all sorts of stuff, and Udon had gotten in with them. And uh, Udon. Omar had gotten in with Udon. And um, I'd come back to Toronto and just reached out and said, hey, it'd be great to touch base with you. And we hung out for a day, and he said, we're looking for more artists. And that's how... Um, networking really happens. People tell you, you have to network. And you're like, what is networking? What people think networking is, is that you're gonna hunt someone down, that you're gonna find the most important person in the room, and you're gonna like make them your friend. And that's really, really, really not networking. That's creepy, and it's wrong, and don't do it. Um, it, my friend Charles, uh, I'm not trying to name drop, uh, so I'll just say Charles. Um, Charles has a great description for it. He says, it's fishing, not hunting. Networking is fishing. When you go fishing, or the cliche, the cartoonish version of fishing that we shall create here for you to think, you, you put a bobber in the water, or you put out some bait, your creative ideas, your comic, your pitch, and you put it in the water, and you wiggle it around a little bit, and you try and get someone's attention a little bit, like, hey, check it out. And then you hang back, and you wait for a nibble. If there's a nibble, you kind of test it a little bit, and you go, is this real? Oh, they got it now. Oh, I'm, I'm reeling it in. It's not hunting. I'm not like getting you in the crosshairs, and you don't know it's coming, and then I shoot you dead. <laughs> or you dash like a deer off into the forest, you know what I mean? It's fishing, not hunting. You're putting out the bait, you're hanging back, and you see if they come to you. Because you don't want to be too aggressive, and you don't want to be creepy, and you don't want to wear that ugly orange hat, okay? Um, and that's really the networking kind of thing, making friends and being kind of open to experiences and not stressing out. And it's way easier said than done. Because you go to these kinds of events or you go to social interactions with professionals, and the first thing you think is, oh God, if I could just talk to so-and-so, my entire career will lay out before me and be perfect. Because in your mind, it's already happened, right? You're famous and everything's going great because you talked to Stan Lee or whoever. Now, I'm not motioning, he's not in the audience, don't worry. Um, but that's not really how it happens, ever, ever. What happens is you have a random conversation with a random person at a random social gathering and that just happens to be a person who knows someone else, who remembers talking to you, who mentions that you were funny because you told them an anecdote, and then they meet you another time, and then they see you another time, and familiarity breeds this sense of, oh, this person seems decent. They're probably not a serial killer. I will talk to them more. I will check out their work. Oh, I really like this stuff. I want to work with them. Think of these uh, interactions as a long-term fishing opportunity, okay? Don't hunt fish. Come to the show, have good experiences. Don't freak out if you didn't instantly get, you know, sent a contract or get the job that you wanted. It's a long-term, it's a marathon. Um, um, how do I put this? My first comic I made was in 2001. My first paying comic was uh, 2005. My first breakout, breakout was 2010. And then my first Marvel or DC gig was 2012. 2001, 2012. 
That's not even uncommon, okay? They call it the 10-year overnight success, and I yep. was a year late. Um, but when people discover your work, and they see, oh, where did you come from? Look at all this stuff you've done. You're like, yes, I was off your radar for 10 effing years <laughs> building this monstrosity that you now see before you. Um, uh, the perfect example of that that I can think of, do you guys know that comic book Axe Cop? You guys remember that comic? Remember how it was everywhere? Like that thing erupted and all of a sudden it was on CNN and USA Today and they were like, this guy's brilliant. He's taking his stepbrother's step crazy ideas, his four or five-year-old stepbrother's ideas and making them into a comic. And I remember all the guys in comics were like silently shaking their fists like this bastard. Where did he come from? How dare he appear and suddenly get all the press? And I was one of those people, not like, like but just a little bit of, huh, that was weird. I mean, great, viral, awesome. I met that guy, I just totally blanked on his name and I apologize. Um, I met him at a conference and we did a panel talking about this same kind of thing, breaking in and doing work. And he sat there and explained on the panel how he'd been working in animation and comics for nine years. He had gotten nominated for an Eisner, which is the top award in the industry, and I'd never heard of him before. He was the perfect person because he had built up experience, understood how the industry worked, and had been continually plugging away, plugging away, plugging away. And when this amazing opportunity popped to the top of everyone's cultural zeitgeist, he was the kind of hardworking person who could take advantage of it. He was the kind of person who went, oh, this is it. This is my moment. Get in the car, drive the steering wheel, you know, grab the steering wheel, slam down the, the gas, let's go. This is what he'd been doing all his life, or you know, his creative career. And I was like, oh, it still holds true. Thank God. My theory of this is going to take a while still holds true. He did not break the paradigm. You know, I just assumed he had because I hadn't heard of him. You know what I mean? Um, you know, Gail Simone, she was a hairdresser. That's true. She's a hairdresser. Uh, she was. Who um, was just posting on comic book forums for years and she was posting really funny reviews of comics. And she, she ended up writing for comic book resources? Yeah, the column was called, oh, you're all going to get it or something? And it was a parody column about the industry. Yeah. And it was like tongue-in-cheek. And it was this perfect balance of sarcastic and kind of poking fun, but in a real way. Like occasionally call, pulling someone out and kind of being like, you know, you've got this real tendency in your writing or this kind of yeah. hook, this thing that you're known for and just rubbing it in in that just that nice sarcastic way where you're like okay I can take you know it's a fun kind of parody and she started to get writing on the Simpsons comics done by Bongo this little comic book company um, because they thought she was very funny and then she leveraged that and leveraged that and leveraged that until she started to get bigger uh, writing and then was put on this little dying book at Marvel called Deadpool and that worked out okay um, you know, because she was a good person working away, doing good work, and just slowly but surely building up her, her portfolio. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of different people in the way they sort of go about the process. I will let you speak. <laughs> no, that's okay. Filled the I'm, air with noise. I am a would-be writer too, so well, that's good. I'm just sucking in just all like, the knowledge. All right, it's good. It's good. And and some of my own experiences, I can yeah. kind of relate to in that. Like uh, I, I don't write fiction, but my day job is I write all day. And, cool. But it's 
it took me took me about ten years to get a full time paying gig. Right. So yeah. like there was he, there this, was a real good paying one right off the bat. Right. And then there was a drought. <laughs> yep. And then there was a little bit of part time. And then there was a full time job. And then that went away. And then that's a full time job. We get we, we this little terminology. I, I'm gonna swear. I apologize. We call it um, you know. Oh, I'm. How are you doing? I'm eating steak. How you doing? I'm eating shit. Yep. Like it's just it's not going well. You know. There's there's droughts. There's uh, low periods of this stuff. Um, and I think that's you know, a, a reality of any kind of creative business, you gotta realize that it's not going to be necessarily a steady upward climb. There will be crazy, crazy setbacks. And that's part and parcel of the whole thing too. One of the reasons why I did Skull Kickers, and I was very thankful to do so, uh, that was my first big kind of image book. I could control that it would continue to come out. When I'm doing freelance work for other people, you know, they're paying you, but you know, it ends when they say it ends. You're off the project when they say you're off the project. And Skull Kickers, we could just put our heads down and keep making it. And so at a certain point, it's almost like familiarity. People just, they can't get rid of us. We're gonna be here, you know? Yeah, and especially if you're working for a major company, mm -hmm. long-term uh, writing gigs on a book are non-existent. Yeah, they're rarity. It's, you yeah. know, when you There's look at... There's a couple at, here and there, sure, but... you know, when you look at someone like a Brian Bendis or, or Dan Slott, where they get to do dozens or, in some cases, over 100 issues in a row, yeah. that is the most rarefied of air. And I, I get the other thing, too. People will come to me and they'll pitch me their projects. I'm not a publisher. Don't pitch me your projects. But um, they'll come to me and they'll tell me about their story ideas, and they'll go, I'm going to go to... Image, IDW, boom, whoever. And I'm going to, I want them to publish my 80 issue epic. And I'm like, have you ever done anything before? And they're like, no, but it's such a great idea. I wanted to do it since I was a kid. And I'm like, stop, stop. I know you want this really bad, but do you see them publishing any 80 issue epics of any, from anybody? Like, you are not Brian K. Vaughn. Yep. If you were, we're not talking about your pitch. You are being published and eating all the steak. Um, you know, he can do Saga. You're not doing Saga. That name is taken. Um, you know, but start small, start manageable. The best thing you can do if you've never written comics before is to write short stories. Not necessarily because you want to publish them, but because you want to build up your skills it's like if you were going to run a marathon, <clears throat> you don't buy running shoes and then try and do 12 miles, kilometers. Um, you don't do 12 kilometers because you'll die. You'll, you know, you'll blow out some part of your anatomy that you never knew hurt so bad and your feet will explode and you know, you'll vomit in the gutter and you won't finish, okay? People go into creative endeavors with the most like they forget how anything gets done ever. Like the, the only equivalent I can give you is if you ran into a restaurant and you screamed out loud, I really wanna be a chef. And they were like, who are you? And you said, let's say they didn't kick you out. Let's say they were like, okay, psycho, why should you be our chef? First of all, we have a chef and they're really good and she can kick your ass, um, but let's, We'll humor you. Why should you be the chef? And you go, I, I watch the Food Network, and it's my favorite, and so I want to be a chef. 
And you're like, well, have you ever cooked a meal before? No, but I look at photos of food online and it's beautiful and it's my ultimate dream. And you're like, well, you should go fry an egg and learn the process and maybe, maybe not scare people and go apprentice underneath a sous chef or clean dishes in a back kitchen, build up your skills, make your own meals, impress your friends and family, impress people who are complete strangers, convince complete strangers that your food would be worth money, work at another restaurant, and then some point, some manager, investor, owner is gonna say, you know what, I like your moxie, why don't you be my chef, okay? And that seems completely reasonable. But when it comes to creative endeavors, people are like, American Idol or nothing. Like they're like, I'm gonna run up to Stan Lee and I'm gonna tell him I got a Spider-Man idea and then he's gonna lift me out of the crowd and throw me to New York City and I will become the writer of Spider-Man. And the current writer of Spider-Man will spontaneously combust <laughs> and leave the floor open for me. And it's like, that's not how real life works, okay? That's not how anything works. You have to, before someone is willing to pay you to do a creative job, you have to be doing work at a professional level for no money, usually, um, for a long enough period that people recognize your skill or, or you know, and then decide that you're ready to go. Yep. What's a good example of somewhere small? That's a good, well, the great thing is the, the web is a wonderful platform because it's completely publisher agnostic in the sense that you can put your work online and the amount of time it takes for someone to go to mcdonalds.com, marvel.com, or yourname.com, uh, not the movie, but your name, um, is the same. And so you can put your work online and anyone can find it. They don't have to pay money for it, which is bad for your pocketbook, but good for your exposure. And you can build up that portfolio. You can build up those types of things. There was a time early on when publishing on the web was considered vanity publishing, when people look at, oh, poo poo, you're on DeviantArt. We don't hire DeviantArt artists. Those are fan artists. And now that stuff's all washed away. Is the work quality? Are you capable? And ideally, do you have someone currently in the industry who would kind of vouch for you? That's not a necessary one, but it can be very helpful to push someone over the line. Um, people have this weird idea in their heads that when they look at published work, they look at the absolute worst quality example and they go, I'm better than garbage, so you should hire me. That is not your goal, okay? No one is going to say, wow, this kid is 2% better than the worst thing we publish. We better take a risk on them. <laughs> that doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way in art. It doesn't happen that way in writing. It doesn't happen that way in real life. You know what I mean? So you have to be upper middle of the pack. You, know, you may not, you don't have to be Alex Ross. You don't have to be, you know, J. Scott Campbell and Becky Cloonan, but you, you gotta get somewhere in the middle that someone could realistically look and go, that is substantially better than what we generally have. I would be willing to take a risk on that. You know what I mean? I'd be willing to invest the time in you. And the best way you can show someone that is with real examples of work. So when you create a comic, when you create a story, you have to be able to hold it up side by side against the publisher that you want to work for and go, does this, and not the same style, but of quality, of storytelling quality, of artistic quality, of satisfying product. If you aren't of that quality, what is missing? 
Is it the storytelling? Oops, that's your fault. Um, the dialogue, the lettering, the coloring, whatever it might be, you know? Um, and that's what you're really up against. You have to prove that you are operating at that level. When someone says, well, how do you write you know, Marvel comics? You're creating comics that are as good or better than what Marvel publishes, and some editor goes, if I hire Zub, that's a feather in my cap, because it's gonna make me look good, gonna make us look good, everybody wins. You know? And I know that sounds like a very simple formula, and it takes years to get up to that level, and I'm still figuring it out all the time. Um, but that's really what you need to do. And that would hold true if you're trying to get into the music business. That would hold true if you're trying to get into game design, any kind of creative endeavor, I think. Is there also something to be said about learning the discipline of sitting down, writing something, oh. getting it finished? If you, if you can't get the work done, I mean, you're already dead. Like, and I think people get the wrong idea that you have to be putting output as fast as, quote, a professional. Mm. I, you do work up to it. Yep. Like, if you have a really crazy day job, you're not gonna be able to write monthly comics at first. You're not gonna be able to pump out stories of quality as fast as your favorite writers because they have built up to this. It's like the marathon analogy, but you will get faster, you will get better, you will get more um, capable as you go through. But you have to be able to block out time. It doesn't have to be the same time every day, though it might be. It doesn't have to be every day. I know that some people say if you're not writing every day, you're not a writer. Those people are liars, okay? I hate whenever someone gives writing advice that sounds one size fit all and they tell you something is must. There is no must. There is what worked for you and all of a sudden you prescribe it and you say, well, if it worked for me, it's the only method. Those people are liars. Those people don't know anything in terms of their, they've, they've got tunnel vision. I hate that stuff. When someone says, well, if you just do this, no, there's no just. There is, hey, this worked for me. Maybe this advice will help you. If not, fare thee well. You'll find your own path, and you should. I, my method of writing, my method of working, my method of project management is a kit-bashed monstrosity, Frankenstein monster of things I learned from other people, my own fuck-ups, and my own insecurities mixed with my friends and hope. <laughs> you ever see those um, videos of before the, the Wright brothers flew their plane? Yeah. And the guy's trying to make flying machines? And some of them have like bicycle, you know, and the flapping wings and the gears flying everywhere and the rotating propellers. That is a creative project. And some of them are really hideous and they careen down the runway and some of them take off and most of them crash. And you find your own way of doing it. You find your own way that works for you. And you can learn a lot from other people and their process, but only you can do it the way that you do it. So if you write on a regular basis, I believe that that is valuable. If you find a schedule that works best for your life, you know, that fits around your kids or your schooling or your job, great. I can tell you examples of those. I can tell you mine, but that doesn't mean you have to be me or you have to do it the way that I do it. Uh, Cullen Bunn, he writes this book called The X-Men. It's pretty awesome. Uh, he's been doing comics for many years. <clears throat> he used to have a day job at an insurance company. Even while he was working at Marvel, he was transitioning uh, you know, to becoming a full-time writer. He was still working at the insurance company. And he would wake up at 6.30 a.m. in the morning before his kids even woke up. That's discipline. He would write for an hour, get his kids ready for school, get them out the door, get in his car, drive to work, 
he would work four hours. Then during lunch hour, all of his buddies would go off to have lunch. He would stay in his office, eat a sandwich, and write. At night, get the kids off to bed, spend time with his family. Family goes to sleep, and he writes for another hour. Three hours a day, every weekday. On the weekends, four hours a day. It's not a full-time job, but it's pretty darn close. He had a lot of discipline to do it, and that worked for him. I would not be able to write at seven in the morning. It doesn't work for me. Not how, not gonna, not gonna happen. <clears throat> but I've written on plane rides. I've written in hotels. Which I cannot do. Right? I, I, that was, you know, the mother of necessity. You just, yeah. you're on the road, you got deadlines. Um, you know, I've written uh, in my office at the school, you know, all sorts of different places where I need to. Once I have an outline, I can sort of like, vaporize the world out there and just hunker down and, and plug away on a project. But that's what works for me. I tend to you know, binge, write a lot, and then take a step back and then revise. Great, the work gets done, it's of quality, then it works. You know, you're not making your editor wanna hunt you and kill you, you're doing your job, you know what I mean? So that's sort of, um, you will find your own way, but the only way to discover that is to keep doing and to keep building and to make mistakes. Like not every story that I've done was of the utmost quality, you know. I wish they all were, but you make mistakes like anything else. I don't know. And every once in a while there's a rush job that you Yeah. It doesn't seem like it was rushed at the time, but you go back and look at it and go Oh, I remember uh, what I, I was doing when that went out. Yeah. yeah. There's um when I was in school for art, I um I would look through, I love role-playing games, love tabletop role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons, and, and I would look through some of the art from those books, and some of them were wonderful, utterly inspiring. Some of them were real bad, like real low quality, holy crap, how did this get published? And because I was in art school, I thought I knew everything, because that's what happens when you go to higher education. You become an asshole. Um, and you think you're gonna solve the world, and you think you're gonna fix everything, and you're creative, whatever. And so we would sit around and we would literally, you know, you learn perspective drawing and anatomy and then you'd flip through a professionally published product and you go, ha, they don't know anything. We are of such higher quality knowledge. And one book in particular, I remember flipping through and being like, this thing is the biggest pile of dog shit. I can't believe any company would put their signature on this. They should all be fired. Bup, 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 bup. Thank God there were no internet forums back then. Yep. Um, or my Twitter would have just gone off anyways um and then reality kicks in years later we're talking six seven years later i'm out for dinner with a bunch of people in the industry including an art director for that same company and we were just like what's the worst project you've ever worked on and this art director goes whap and says that book title and i was like thank you garbage Indicated. and then the art director explains to me that that artist phoned them weeping and said, <clears throat> excuse me, my mother's dying and I need to, this is America, I have no healthcare. I need money now, I have to pay bills. And she was like, this is my newest project, it's yours. Can you do it? He's like, I'll do whatever it takes. And he drew that whole fucking book in four days. And he handed it in and it looked terrible and she said, it's approved. And that's why that book's a big piece of shit. And I thought I was so smart and so funny and so, look at me, I'm so superior. And I don't know anything about real life. I don't know how real stuff happens. I don't know that people make mistakes. I have no sense of 
humility. I'm just this little punk shithead who was like, oh, I could do better than that. Real people make this stuff. And sometimes it's great, and sometimes it's aspirational and perfect, and other times it's not what you thought it was gonna be. And no one was proud of that project, and no one felt good about it, but it was what needed to be done at the time, right? And that's, that was like a big ton of bricks that just hit me like, oh, real people are complicated. <laughs> I'm not a child anymore, you know what I mean? And so every so often I'll work on something and I'll be like, hmm, well that didn't go the way I wanted to. What have we learned today? You know what I mean? And so it's like that kind of stuff. Is there a particular project you can think of that you're like, uh, as a a life lesson, I guess? Sure. Um, I can't go into too much detail. So, uh, (laughs) you have to be careful, you see. So I was supposed to write the Birds of Prey for DC Comics. Uh, When the new 52 launched, um, I was, they were about six or seven issues in, and I was offered to take over Birds of Prey. And they announced the book with my name on it, and I'd written an outline and it was approved, and then I wrote two scripts and they were approved, and then everything went off the rails. Uh, plans changed. If you ever hear an announcement that says, that they decided to go in a different direction, yep. or if they ever say creative differences, differences, that is the nicest, most professional. These people almost killed each other. There was blood um, kind of process. And uh, it didn't come together. And at the time, that was going to be my first big two project. Yeah. So all my, if this was the casino, all my chips, all my chips. And uh, I, I busted. It didn't work out. And I ended up, you know, getting turfed off the book and being like, well, there's Marvel and DC. And I'm never working there again. And I was like, I'm, I'm doomed. I guess I'm not going to be in comics very long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was so, so destroyed. I was destroyed creatively. I was destroyed personally. I was like, well, I'm ruined. I can't show my face at a convention. I don't know what I'm going to do. And uh, that was really a really real hard kind of turf lesson. And um, a friend of mine who was at IDW, he contacted me. And I said, remember I, I told you I couldn't do that project because I have <laughs> a big two book coming? He goes, yeah, I'm open to pitching. <laughs> and he was like, oh, um, um well, we're putting in proposals for this uh, revival of Samurai Jack. Do you like Samurai Jack? I'm like, I can love that thing. Also, I will take anything. Uh, but I also love that thing. And they were taking pitches. And I said, when do you need a pitch? This was Tuesday. Yep. He goes, Thursday. I'm like, of course you do. So that night, I binge-watched a bunch of my favorite episodes. And I tried to pour out on the page everything that I thought I loved about uh, Samurai Jack. And... Then I read it in the morning, and I was like, this is terrible. And then, and then I you know, fixed it all up and got it good to go, sent it in. Uh, and what I found out later, I love these things where you discover something later on. Andy Suriano, he's the character designer for Samurai Jack. He was uh, going to be drawing the series. Phenomenal, right? He was also going to write it. <laughs> oh. So he was one of the seven writers who put in a pitch. And he was one of the people approving the pitches. They're like, hmm, kind of stacked the deck there, buddy. Uh, 
so <laughs> I guess, uh, so what happened was they got in all the pitches and he ostensibly read them all, but in the back of his mind, he's like, well, this is mine. And I, he read my pitch and he said, I want to draw that more than I want to draw my own idea. Oh, nice. <laughs> And so he and the other guys approved my pitch. And he told me that years later. He's like, do you know who you beat to do, to do this book? I'm like, who? He goes, me. I was like, what? You're drawing it? No. I was supposed to write it, too. And I'm so happy we get to work together. I was just like, oh, my God. You know, anyways, weird little moments like that, kind of fun stuff. But Samurai Jack not only got me back on the board, it got me back mentally. I was like, I can, I can make stuff. I'm not a moron. Uh, and slowly but surely claw my way back from disaster. So there's something also to be uh, said and talked about about how small the community of comics. Yeah, it can is be and wonderful and, uh, and it can be terrifying. Yeah, yeah, because word can get around uh, not, one way or the other. Right? And that was what I knew. And so when I had been turfed off a project, I thought, well, everyone knows, you know. And it would be years later, someone would be like, oh yeah, I remember you're supposed to do that thing. Whatever happened to that thing? And I was like, what? What thing? I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm cool. I've never had any problems. No one ever makes mistakes in this business. Anyways, uh, yeah, it's like, um, it is a small community. Smaller than you think. And that can be very cool, and it can be awful, awful, awful. Because it can be really insular. Yeah. One of the problems that the industry's had is on that diversity level, because they don't look outside their own backyard. They just look at the same ugly white guys all sitting around, you know. Straight, fat, white guys sitting around, sweating. That's awful. Anyways, and they don't really realize there's a huge, wonderful, amazing industry. And uh, the Internet's helped that a lot. I'm going to take questions in a bit. You're like, I know ugly white people, too. I'm like, I know. It's, it's the worst. Um, it's okay. I've got a timer and when to cut them off for questions. Yeah. It's... um. And they've been really good about, people finally are finally realizing they should get their asses out there and look beyond their own, you know, noses at some of the phenomenal talent online at some of the phenomenal talent doing it despite the odds, thanks to things like Kickstarter, thanks to things like web comics and web platforms and uh, all sorts of different areas. People setting up tables here and just showcasing their work. I think it's really beautiful and wonderful and it bodes well for the future of the industry, although it goes through growing pains all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, am I rambling enough? Are we covering enough weird, rambling topics? There was that moment where I was going to make you guys all cry, and then we came back to happiness again. We're okay. Um, it's, it's all good. Yeah. What, um, I think a lot of that's part of writing, though. Yeah. Like, well, part of any job, right? There's other things that go into any kind of jobs that you don't really think any about. Any kind of creative industry, you put part of yourself into it, and yeah. that's one of the hardest things is that Remember I talked about being invested and divested. Being invested enough in your own work that you care, that you're emotionally involved, but divested enough that you can take critique. Yeah, because you, you, you will get stuff back that you oh, have to rewrite. I'm writing the Avengers right now. Marvel fans are very particular. <laughs> very particular about everything. Um, and they, they have emotional investment in these characters because they grew up on them, because they've been reading them for forever, because they inspired them to be the people that they are. And you're playing with the big toys. And that's wonderful. And it's, a, it's an honor to do it. It is an honor. But equally, you have to be confident enough to say, I'm making this change, or I'm making this decision, or at least the editor is allowing me to do this stupid thing. And, um, you know, let's see how it goes. 
and take take risks, take chances with this stuff, you know. Um, and that's a it's a really weird thing where people are tweeting at you from across the world and telling you you are you are awesome, you suck, you are awesome, you suck, you know. And they just roll into your feed, and you're like, I don't know what I am right now. I'm confused and happy. Be, you know, <laughs> at least you're paying attention. You know, I think the worst thing is if no one's, no one sees it. Uh, it, yeah. it makes you feel any better. My my music column went up today, and it is on Rush on a particular album. Right. And I mentioned a farewell to Kings, and I mentioned it once. My spell check took out the A, and some Rush fan. Yeah. Like I am not a fan, and I am not a good writer. Not a good and person. How could this have yeah. ever happened? And like, it's a rinky-dink music column. Yeah, yeah. like it's yeah, when nothing. You, I put I let put, alone the Avengers. I couldn't yeah. imagine the hatred yeah. you get. Sometimes. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty phenomenal. What was funny was every so often. I don't want to throw uh, someone under the bus here, but we had one uh, issue. I did Thunderbolts, and it's got the Winter Soldier in it. And Bucky fans are awesome, and they were really dedicated. And um, he had lost his cybernetic arm, and we replaced it with a new one, which is fine. And he makes a stray comment where it's, uh, he says, um, you know, the old one was really heavy. And the fixer, the guy who makes his new arm, says, well, that's because it was old Soviet tech. Yep. And in the script, I wrote a little aside, and I said to the editor, is it still Soviet tech? I thought it was replaced by Stark Industries, but I can't remember. Please double check. Wrote that right in the script. Editor... It fell through the cracks. People make mistakes. Man, that issue came out. That is not Soviet tech. Tony Stark made that arm. It happened in this issue. You suck. You don't know anything about the Winter Soldier. Why do they let you write this? And I was just like, I don't want to say I knew that was going to be a problem, but I actually knew that was going to be a problem. So I'm like, I kind of like, I was like, Alana to my editor, like, can you throw yourself on the sword here? And she gets on Twitter, she's like, Jim actually asked me to check that. And then they're like turning the guns on her. I've seen it happen in real time. I'm like, oh no! Oh, ah, ah. <laughs> but that's how it can be sometimes. My buddy told me, he said, uh, you know, if you ever get a chance to write the X-Men, he's like, get off Twitter. I was like, really? He's like, oh yeah. The X-Men fans will, are you, how many of you guys are current readers of the X-Men? Do you hate everything? <laughs> never be happy. You'll never be happy. Because when it, the X-Men change so much, the team dynamic changes so much, that at whatever moment you were inserted into the world of the X-Men and fell in love with them, you'll never get that back. I'm sorry, you'll never get that back. And you hate everything different, but you also want it to be the same. But don't make it the same, because we've seen that before. Oh, X-Men. Anyways. <laughs> What's that, Doctor Who? Basically yeah. Basically Doctor Who. Basically Doctor, Doctor Who. Has the same problem. Thankfully, I will not be writing Doctor Who either. What's that? They tried to replace them. At least we got that back. Oh, the Doctor Who or the X Men? The X Men. Sure, but then someone hates the current lineup because it's not the lineup, their fan lineup, whatever. Anyways, not to let's not argue about the X Men here, please. Jeez. See what you don't prove my up. point, okay? <laughs> <laughs> don't be that. Don't do that. All right. So we've got about 10 minutes left, so let's... Uh... Let's solve the world's problems. Any questions? Yes. Uh, okay, so you write for the Avengers. Yeah. Also... How did that happen? <laughs> but you're also a professor. 
I, I know, that's scary, right? It's a professor. I feel, I have a jacket with the elbow patches <laughs> and a pipe. You, you want people to, to start and get this 10 years work. Where do you see the industry in 10 years? Oh, baby, I wish I knew. I think, here's the thing. I think as a storytelling medium, comics are unstoppable. I don't know that the monthly single issue format will necessarily be around, although people have prescribed its death for decades. I don't know if it will become a purely digital sampling platform and then a collected uh, print platform. Uh, I don't know if um, there will be world wars either. Um, you know, or uh, the global warming will destroy us all. However, uh, in terms of, I think comics as a medium and comics as a storytelling tool are going to be around, absolutely. I feel very strongly that the industry is moving toward comics. I mean, creator-owned comics are driving the industry anyways, and they have been for years. The biggest new, and I hate to use this term, IP, intellectual properties of comics in the last 20 years have not been superheroes. The superhero stuff that is really going over well and currently helping pay my mortgage is they're playing off of older storylines. They're playing off of older, you know, material. The newest modern character that's been incredibly successful in multimedia is probably Deadpool. And then after that, you could, you know, Ms. Marvel hopefully comes into her own and a bunch of stuff like that. But that's still a ways away. Um, but The Walking Dead, Scott Pilgrim, you know, uh, uh, Bone, uh, Amulet, like these books, these properties, these ideas are creator-owned, they're independent, they're vibrant. You know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were as well, and a dozen other titles that I can mention. I think that independent comics and creator-owned comics are the lifeblood of the industry because they're fresh and they're vibrant. When people talk about things they're excited about, they talk about, you know, like Sex Criminals and Image, they talk about Saga, they talk about Mouse Guard. You know, these are the titles that are really igniting, I think, a new readership in the industry which is nothing against comics. I love playing with the big toys, but I think that your independent ideas are more valuable than just the IPs, you know, than just if you don't get to write Captain America, you're gonna throw yourself off a cliff kind of stuff. Um, and I believe that more and more. And when people bring me a copy of Wayward, a fine comic, um, and they say, you know, this got me back into reading comics, or this got me into reading comics, or my friend gave this to me and I can't stop talking about it, the pride that I feel for that is so huge because a lot, you know, if you're a Marvel fan and I stop writing the Avengers, you don't leave. You keep reading the Avengers. You're here to read Wolverine or read Spider-Man or whatever. And that's awesome. But the creators are kind of perfunctory to that in some ways. Like, obviously I want to be doing it and I want to do a good job at it, but we're more replaceable, but wayward, is me, it's mine. Skull Kickers is mine. Glitter Bomb is mine. And when people tell me that's their favorite comic, that would not exist without my efforts. And that's the future of comics. That's those new ideas, those new things. It isn't a coincidence that all those big guys who are writing image books yeah. all get poached for the, the big And vice versa. And vice I think versa. you know there was a huge exodus of writers from Marvel and DC a few years ago because they all realized... Robert Kirkman said it very loudly and said, you guys are fools. You're spending your best years giving your creativity to gigantic corporations and you don't own any of it. Um, and he was right. 
you know, I need to be doing creator-owned books at the same time I'm doing commercial writing. I can't just fall on one or the other. I need to push both, you know, like I'm, sounds really awkward, I'm using the Avengers to raise my platform, and the Avengers is using me and my creativity and my ideas, sucking them out of my brain onto the page, and we are symbiotically feeding off each other until I strip the leech off, or they throw me to the ocean or whatever, and, and you know, hopefully I'm better than I was before at the end of that, and people know me and they like me and want to read more of my work. You know, Ed Brubaker's career made off of The Winter Soldier and now can independently make his own stuff. I think that you're gonna see that more and more, and I think that cycle is gonna get tighter and faster. Yep. It's more of a question about the actual like, writing process. Sure. But what's your advice on, I've been writing a little bit. Yep. What's your advice on how to make sort of setup scenes that aren't like big like, or emotional, just to make the sort of scenes that are just kind of setting things up? Every, to make them interesting. Sure. Every story, if we had to break it down to a really simple uh, process, is what's called the three-act play. <coughs> Introduction, uh, conflict, resolution. I'm gonna tell you guys a story. You up for that? We only got a few minutes, but I'm gonna be real fast. Maybe we'll run over time. <laughs> I'm not sure if there's anybody in here after us, so. Awesome. And, and nobody so has stepped in great. to give me the five minutes. Well, there you go. Or are you at the back giving me the five minutes? Nope. Nope. They're like, okay. who are you? What? So, okay. So, real quick version. Uh, I decide I'm going to propose to the woman who becomes my wife. And we're going to go on a little quick vacation. Uh, she thinks we're just going to New York City as a making up for her birthday is at a crappy time of year because it's between Christmas and New Year's, and no one wants to do that shit. So early December, I'm going to take her on a little day trip to New York, a weekend away to New York. <clears throat> but I have the ring. I'm going to propose to this woman. It's going to be the best. She has no idea it's coming. We're down at um, the Island Airport here in Toronto. I'm a local. We're going to be flying on Porter, that little funky airport. Yay. And um, we're going through security. And just before we get to the, the thing, I look at her and I said, you know, I'm so happy to be with you. And I can't wait for this weekend. And she's like, me too. And I said, next year we should talk about the next stage of our relationship. And she's like, really? I said, yeah. So now she's off the trail. She thinks maybe a proposal next year, and I'm like, it's gonna happen. So we're going through security, and this is not that long after terrible terrorist things. And so they're very, very picky about security stuff. And my backpack goes through the x-ray scanner, and I got those little medical scissors you use to clip your fingernails and trim your uh, goatee or whatever. And the guy's like, oh. Oh, you got a pair of uh, scissors in your backpack. I'm like, I do. And he takes the backpack off the x-ray thing, and he pops it open, and he starts taking every single thing out of the backpack. <laughs> and there's a ring box in there, and it is a ring box, ring box, ring box. So you do not... It's One of those shapes that it can be nothing Identifiable. Else. And I'm, my heart is pounding. And I'm, sweat is literally forming on my brow. And I'm like five minutes into our vacation, I have to propose to my wife at the security station at the airport. How's this going to go? And you can't tell the guy, stop <laughs> at the airport. That goes very poorly. And I'm just like, oh, God, oh, God. And I, 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 I stammering a little bit, and I look at my soon-to-be fiancé, and I said, why don't you go ahead to the gate? This is probably going to take a little while. 
And she, I just told her we're going to get to the next stage of our relationship. She's like, glue on me. No. She just holds on to me. I'm like, oh, okay, we're doing this thing. You know, I'm gonna, is, this is happening. I'm going to propose to this woman at the security line at the fucking airport. And the dude on the scanner looks and goes, And the guy's like, <laughs> and then the guy goes, oh, oh, it was a mistake. <laughs> and he puts everything back in the backpack slowly and he zips it and he hands it over to me and I'm shaking. And he goes, have a good weekend. That's a story I just told you, but I didn't, it really happened. That really happened to me, scared the living fuck out of me. Um, and the whole weekend is actually like a gigantic romantic comedy and it's terrifying. But we're married now, it's good. But um, I told it to you a specific way and it follows the three act play, okay? I didn't just randomly tell you a series of facts and figures and information. I set it up, I introduced, con I introduced things. The introduction of a story is, the who, what, where, why kind of thing. So it's like the who, me, my wife. You assume she is a wonderful person because I am a wonderful person. Uh, where are we going? We're in an airport. We're not just at any airport. We're at a smaller airport that it might be the kind of place that might break the rules a little bit, maybe, right? We are going for a particular purpose and you know what that purpose is and you know the emotional kind of content. I am going to be proposing to this woman. That is, immediately sets the stakes. Marriage, happiness, emotional comfort, the future, right? So you know all that information. I've told it to you. You have the ingredients to set the rest of the story into motion, okay? What is the conflict? The conflict is I gotta get through the fucking security line to go to the gate, to go to New York, to propose to the woman. Okay, what is standing in my way? A physical threat, potentially, a mental threat, an emotional threat, some kind of conflict. Not all conflict is good versus evil, lightsabers. It's conflict in the sense of internal or external conflicts. The conflict of my own neuroses around proposing to this person. The conflict of I have made a mistake in the security protocol. The conflict of the security guard has to follow said security protocol. Where does it go? You're all wrapped with attention, wondering how that's gonna play out. The tension rises, I take you to a specific moment, and then the climax of the story takes place. The climax of the story is the payoff. Success, failure, something big. Big based on the stakes that I've established for you. Not every story has to be world changing, change my world. Not everything has to be, you know, galaxy spanning threat, and in some ways, those stories can be better and more personal and more emotional because we can't really imagine billions and billions, but we can imagine one, two, five, ten, right? That moment that I let you, let you hang for just a little bit, that whisper in the ear, and then the payoff is, it was a mistake. <gasps> Your emotions. And then I let you down into the third act of the play, which is resolution. What happened? We went on our merry way. Everything worked out okay. Does every story work out okay? No. This one did. You answered the questions that you asked. What's going to happen? Is Jim going to get through the security line? You know. Did he live happily ever after? So far, so good, okay? <laughs> <laughs> she hasn't turfed me yet. Um, 
And now that's how you tell a story, okay? And that's true of whether that's a particular issue, whether that's a story arc, whether that's a movie, whether that's a TV show. Uh, old sitcoms follow the three-act play so tightly that they have a goddamn commercial break in between each act. Watch an episode of Friends, look for the formula. Set up, commercial break. Conflict, commercial break. Payoff. You're like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's kind of terrifying, actually. You're just like, this is so mechanical. Oh my God, nothing is a coincidence. If someone says, hey look, I just got a package in the mail in act one, that package in the mail will pay off. I forget the author who said, uh, don't, don't introduce a gun in act one, thank you, unless you're gonna pay it off, you know, unless someone's gonna pull that trigger, someone's gonna pull it on each other, right? Yep, in the back. Right. Right. So the question was, if you got a team book, do you go by individuals or overall purpose? And I wish I had a nice answer. I think it depends on how much time space you got. I think it depends on what the current paradigm of that team is. If you're able to build the team from scratch, great. And I think it depends on your own kind of writing strengths. I really like writing teams. Uh, playing within the sandbox of the Marvel Universe is terrifying and wonderful. And so the Uncanny Avengers is this weird mongrel team of teams, you know, bits of the X-Men, bits of the Avengers, uh, one member of the Fantastic Four, an Inhuman, and all this stuff all jammed together with their own purposes. So I realized very quickly, uh, I can't just pick the team up and push them all to the same end goal. It's a bunch of individual stories and individual weaving kind of bits and pieces that I have to shamble forth over the finish line for as many issues as we've got. And that other difficult process of you don't know if you're going to get a 20-issue run or if you're going to get five issues and get turfed. So you kind of have to make satisfying steps forward, leave some threads open that other people might pull or you might get to you know, wind up all yourself. Uh, I did Thunderbolts for 12 issues and I loved it. It was a ton of fun. And my goal was to take us into Secret Empire because that's what I was hired to do with the understanding that I might be able to pick it up after Secret Empire. And so I purposely left a bunch of cliffhanger stuff as an impetus for, you know you want me to do this. Come on guys, let me, let me do it. They haven't told me if I can do it yet. It's entirely possible someone else will have to pick up those threads, curse my name, and, and wrap them up. Or, you know, they'll jump ahead five years and pretend it never happened. I don't know. But I set it up in a way that as I could make a satisfying story and I hope that I get to pay it out. It's not up to me. The good thing is they won't cancel Wayward without me getting to have my say. You know what I mean? Hopefully. I uh, hate to do this, but we did get the wrap up. Oh, this crap. Time. Okay, so, so uh, thank you so much for coming. I hope you guys found it really interesting. I'm over at table P8. This is a stack of free comics. Do not rush the table. If you grab one and you want it signed, come on over to P8. I'll sign it for you. Otherwise, take, read, enjoy. Enjoy the rest of Fan Expo. been listening to the true north nerds recorded at the utility cupcake research kitchen reach the nerds on twitter at true north nerds on facebook under surprise true north nerds 
And you can reach them by email at truenorthnerds at gmail.com. If you like the opening theme song, it's called Set Your Phasers to Sexy by Kirby Crackle from the album Sounds Like You. Please go to kirbycracklemusic.com or look them up on iTunes and buy everything that they have made. You won't regret it. So set your phasers to sexy.